I hope you have your Bibles with you. If you're not accustomed to bringing them with you, I encourage you to carry your, the, your copy of the Scripture uh, as you come to church. I know many people often ask the question, well, what about using it on my phone? And here's my answer to that. If you can use your phone and you can look through the Word of God without distracting yourself or others, that's wonderful. However, I know that if I were to utilize my phone to read the Bible, I would be very distracted with every single notification and text message and every other app that's just sitting there waiting for my fingers to use. So I encourage you to consider using a physical copy of the scriptures to carry it with you and get in the habit of having that as you come to church. And then when we're going through the word of God together, you'll have that ready to go. So let me just say, if you're with us today and you have your Bible, that you should open now to Genesis chapter 3 as we're going to begin our exploration of the word there. Over the past few weeks, we've been seeking to answer the question, what is the message of the Bible? If you will, remember that illustration of the target. Every time we've gathered together, we've talked about the message of the gospel, but our desire is to move from the outer ring of the target and closer to the center. The entire Bible, the outer ring, is about life and death. And then we zoomed in a little bit closer and we saw that The Bible and the message of the Scripture is all about grace. But today, we are going to lock our focus on the very heart of the center of the bullseye of the entire message of the entire Bible, which is summed up in the single word, atonement. The point of the entire Bible comes down to what Jesus said when he was on the cross. He cried out, it is finished. In Greek, that is one word, tetelestai. Now, this word has been found all over the ancient world. We have usages of it recorded throughout archaeological records everywhere. The primary way that this was used was to stamp on the bottom of a paid-off loan. So back then, they didn't have banks. Rather, they had money lenders. And if you were a money lender and someone paid off their loan to you, you would say, Tetelestai. You would write that across their bill, and therefore, it is now nullified. There is nothing left to pay because it is finished. It is paid in full. And at the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. It is paid in full. But the question that you should be asking of that text, what you should be asking of Jesus' words is, what exactly is finished? Because certain, certainly Jesus still is doing things. Certainly he still had more of his mission to accomplish in the sense that he still had to descend to the dead. He still had to rise from the dead. He still had to ascend to the Father and be seated at his right hand. He still has to intercede for his people. And he is coming again. He still has work in the future to do. So what does it mean that it is finished. If we understand the question, if we understand what it is, then we understand the central element of truth, the entire message of the Bible. If you understand this question, then you will know the very heart of the center of the bullseye of God's message to mankind. You will know everything that is necessary for salvation. But if we're going to have any hope of understanding the most weighty and significant truth in the entire universe, then we're definitely not going to be able to do that in our own strength. We need assistance today from Almighty God. So please join me as we go to Him and pray for His work in our hearts and in this place today. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, it is an absolute honor 
that we get to come together in a body and we get to celebrate what you have done in Jesus Christ through the worship that we present to you through hearing. And Lord, I am thankful that you give me the opportunity today to worship you through proclamation. Lord, we know that we are not worthy hearers, and I, Lord, better than anyone here know that I am not a worthy proclaimer. But God, I am thankful that by your grace, you work in broken people like us to do your majestic and incredible transformative work. So God, we pray that today you would use my voice to proclaim truth and that people would be able to have ears to hear. And God, we need your work in this, for we acknowledge that without you, there will be no lasting or meaningful change. So God, we pray that today that you would train our minds for righteousness, that you would give us wisdom and clarity. And Father God, I pray that as much as possible, you would operate through my voice to encourage people in what is accurate according to Scripture. Please help us know the message of the Bible, that we might believe it fully. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. For the sake of clarity, allow me to just give a preview of where we're going to go today. We're going to attempt to understand the very heart of God's message by starting with a very quick, and I do mean very quick, jaunt through the Old Testament, hitting some of the most important events and key elements of history. And then what we're going to do is seek to understand how our previous messages of life and death and the message of grace bring themselves together in our central truth of the atonement. There are only two truths that I want you to carry with you as we make our way through the Old Testament. I want you to think of these things as we keep walking through these stories. And what I will do is I will remind you of these two things. First, that God demands a perfect life. And secondly, that God demands that sinners die. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. He demanded a perfect life from them. And as you know, these perfectly created people broke God's single command, and they brought sin into the world. Therefore, God demanded that sinners die. And this curse of death also brought with it guilt and brought with it shame. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that it was at this point that Adam and Eve understood that they were naked. Now, Certainly they knew intellectually that they were unclothed. It's not that they were learning new information about themselves. Rather, something had radically shifted within them. For the very first time, people did not want others to fully see them because now, for the very first time, people had something to be ashamed of and people had something to hide. Sin brought death and it brought guilt and it brought shame. And do you know where we see the very first death in the Bible? the consequences of sin? More importantly, do you know who bloodied their hands with that very first death? Now, perhaps you're thinking of Cain, with Cain and Abel. Of course, that is the first human death that we see in the Bible, but that is not the first time something died. The very first time in the history of the world that someone's blood was, blood was shed was actually shed by God himself. If, you've ever, if you have your Bible open, look down to verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3. This is what occurs directly following God's cursing of Adam, Eve, and the serpent. It tells us, quote, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Consider the necessary process to make clothing from an animal's skin. 
It requires that the animal give its life. It requires that the animal be killed and that its body be marred beyond recognition. Being that Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden were the only ones who had ever sinned, it necessitates that this creature must have been pure and blameless. And being part of a pre-fallen world, it means that the animal would have been without flaw or defect or even any disease, for those things had not yet come into the universe. Yet, in his abundant mercy, God spilled the blood of an innocent animal to cover the guilt and shame of Adam and Eve. Now, in this event, we see the very first rumblings of the promised atonement that was coming. Jump forward, if you will, now to the time of Abraham. And if you have your Bibles on your lap, turn to Genesis chapter 22. God has given Abraham a promised child. If you know the story, you will remember that Abraham had a little boy at the ripe old age of 100 years old. And after all of this waiting, God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, in faith, Abraham obeyed, and there are many things we could talk about regarding that obedience today. There is not a single portion of the Old Testament that has more clear foreshadowing of the cross. We just don't have time to explore the entire story in detail today, but if you want more detail, there's a couple ways to find it. One is that on Tuesday, I will be attaching a link to, an e, uh, to a sermon that was preached a couple of years ago by myself from this entire chapter, and I will include a link that was preached on Good Friday, which includes a portion by pastor, the former pastor Steve Schultz of Redeeming Grace Fellowship, and he will explain to you some of the other details of this passage. But for now, I simply want to draw your attention to one primary truth in this passage. When Isaac was told about this sacrifice, when Isaac was told, hey, we're going to go have this sacrificial opportunity, I want you to come with me, and they go to this place, and they travel on the journey, Isaac notices something, he looks around, and he realizes something is missing. And he says to Abraham, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Now, it's likely that many of you know this story well. Do you remember Abraham's answer? He says in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God will provide. Now, if you remember, God stops Abraham before taking the life of his son. Before that knife can come down into this child's throat or chest, God holds back his hand and keeps him from this event. And at that point, they look up and they see a sacrificial animal trapped by its thorns in a thicket. But if you remember, it was not a lamb, rather it was a ram that was sacrificed on that hill that day. Does this mean that Abraham was wrong? There's a name that we have for God that we find in the scriptures. Perhaps you know this name. Perhaps you have sung songs about this name. Perhaps you have heard many times this name. It is the name of God, Jehovah Jireh. Does anybody know what that name means, Jehovah Jireh? Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Now, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and they were a little bit on the side of, um, you know, healing to an extent of excess, and some of what their focus was was a little bit far from where I think it should have been, and one of the things that I often heard growing up was about Jehovah Jireh, my provider, and that means he will give me everything. 
that I need. And if I pray, He will provide. Now, I don't deny that God does provide for His children. However, that is not the way the name is used in the Bible. In fact, there is only one single time, one solitary event, where we ever hear the name Jehovah-Jireh in the entire Bible, and I just read it for you. Did you see it? Abraham says, God Himself will provide the Lamb. God, my provider. God will provide a Lamb. And God will provide a Lamb for the sacrifice. It did not occur that day. However, it was going to come eventually. The whole point of this promise that occurred on that hill is that God would eventually provide a substitute. He would provide a pure and blameless and spotless lamb. Jehovah Jireh is not a promise that God will give you stuff. It is a promise that God would give you someone to die on your behalf. Now let's jump forward another 400 years to the time of Moses. After the Exodus, God gave Moses very detailed instructions about sacrifices and about feasts and about festivals. He told Moses exactly how he wanted the people to worship him. And every one of those commands were intentional because they displayed something about the nature and character and even the plan of redemption that God had set forth. And that is why they were told to worship in these ways. But the highest holy day on the entire Jewish calendar was always Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now, when I grew up, I had no idea the words Yom Kippur, but here, being that we have oftentimes growing up with a school system with Jewish holidays, we know about Yom Kippur, but what is it? Yom Kippur was the day when they were required to sacrifice a perfect spotless lamb that would serve to atone for the sins of the people. The blood of those thousands of animals were to be collected, and they were to be sprinkled upon the Ark of the Covenant, and then they were to be sprinkled upon the people, and that blood was representative of something that was coming. This probably seems bizarre to us with our modern sensibilities. I mean, if you just step back a little bit and consider what that would look like, it's strange. Imagine if you were to take a lamb, just this little cute little animal from a farm, and you were to take it over to the Veterans Memorial Park right in front of the library, and you were on a beautiful summer or spring day with this little animal, certainly it would gather a crowd. Little children would gather around, and parents would be interested. People would be wanting to pet this lamb. And let's just say, for the sake of argument here, that you were to take out a Bowie knife, and you were just to slit its throat, and you were to lay it down, and you were to light it on fire. Somebody would come and collect you and put you in a home. They would not accept what you are doing. This is a strange thing to us. This is not the way that we operate in the modern world. But God commanded this kind of death, and not just of a single lamb, but on a whole-scale event, once a year, every person was required to give an atoning sacrifice. God demands perfection. Therefore, The animal had to be perfect, and God demands that sinners die. Therefore, when the sin of a person was metaphorically transferred onto the animal, the animal had to die. A perfect spotless lamb, however, could not and never did atone for their sins. When the lamb or when the sin of a person was symbolically transferred, the death of that lamb only symbolically atoned. But here's the thing. There was never once a sacrifice that actually accomplished any cleansing work. It couldn't actually pay the debt. Those lambs were merely a picture of the true atonement that was to come. They were only to point to it, not provide it. However, 
When giving the law to Moses, God made a promise to the people about the very nature of this atoning lamb. God tells the people in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, he says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I, God speaking, have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Where does atonement come from? How is it made? According to this verse, atonement comes by the hand of God, himself shedding blood. According to this verse, it is not the myriads of sacrifices made by man that actually produces atonement. Rather, God says that he gives a sacrifice that makes atonement by the shed blood. For centuries, the Israelites slaughtered lamb after lamb after lamb. There was an entire industry of shepherding that popped up to provide the animals necessary for these sacrifices. In fact, the primary location where these lambs were bred and raised was in a tiny little town just a couple of miles away from Jerusalem called Bethlehem. This is where lambs were designed to grow for the purpose of sacrifice. And there, a lamb was born. This is why the words of John the Baptist ring out so loudly throughout the ages. When he sees his cousin Jesus approaching, he says, Behold, the lamb. But not just the lamb. Don't, don't forget, he says, the lamb of God. Look, there are a lot of lambs that have shown up over the years and none of them accomplishing anything. But there is the lamb, the lamb that God will provide, the lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. None of those lambs took away one sin. But here comes the lamb who accomplishes the removal of sin. That lamb that God had provided that had promised to provide through Abraham, he arrived. That lamb that would be sacrificed by God himself to take away sins, he arrived. The pure and spotless lamb of God was Jesus Christ. Now here's the good news of the gospel. The good news is that God provides what God demands. And here's how he does it. God demands a perfect life. And Jesus lived a perfect life on our behalf. And God demands a sinner's death. But Jesus died on our behalf. So for the rest of our time together, what we are going to do is examine how the grace of God comes to us through life and death. But not our life and death, but the way that the grace of God comes to us through the life of Jesus and through the death of Jesus. We'll begin by considering Jesus' life. God demands a perfect life, and the message of the Bible and part of the atonement is that Jesus lived for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. In other words, there are two baskets of people in the world. There are only two kinds of people. There's the basket containing everyone who is in Adam, and there's the basket containing all of those who are in Christ. All of us began our life in the basket of being in Adam. We were in that basket by birth because we were born into it because we are from his genealogy. We are from his line. And as such, we inherit the curse and we are sinners by nature. But we are also in that bucket because we sin by choice. We are there because we like it. The Bible teaches us that if we are to receive life, we must be in the bucket of Christ. If you are in Christ... The Bible says that you are made alive. 
But the question is, how does this happen? How does this transfer from one to the other take place? The Scripture teaches us that it can happen because Adam and Jesus both fulfill the same kind of role. Now stick with me, because if you are hearing me say that, that might stun you a little bit, and that's good, because whenever you compare Jesus to a created being, you should be cautious. But I want you to consider what the Word says, and hear me carefully, because this is very important. I want you to hear these words from Romans chapter 5, verse 14, but in particular, I want you to hear and put attention on the very end, the parenthetical phrase that concludes this sentence. Paul writes, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Here's the key. Who, speaking of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. In other words, Paul writes, Adam is a type of Christ who was to come. Paul is declaring in no uncertain terms that Adam and Jesus fulfill something of the same role for their people in the future. Simply put, because these two people, either Jesus or Adam, serve as our representatives. The fancy word for this that the theologians like to use is that Jesus and Adam serve as our federal heads. They serve as the federal heads of the entire human race. And again, that means, simply put, you are either in this bucket with Adam or you are in this bucket with Jesus. Either Adam is going to represent you before God, or Jesus is going to represent you before God. The bad news is that we all start out in this bucket. But the good news is, 2 Corinthians chapter 5.21, we're going to be here a few times today, that it says, for our sake, he, God the Father, made him Jesus, who knew no sin, Uh, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In order to get into this bucket, you need righteousness. You cannot provide righteousness on your own. You need to receive it. And he gets my sin, I get his righteousness. It is the epitome of a wonderful but unfair trade. Now, there's a simple principle that always holds true. You can take this one to the bank. And it is the principle that you cannot give what you do not have. And when I say that, I am often speaking, when I use that phrase, of you not being able to give to others what you don't have. But in this case, it is also true of Christ. What I mean by that is that God requires humans to perfectly display righteousness. When I say earlier that God requires a perfect life, I mean that in us He requires a perfect human existence. Jesus had always been righteous. From before the foundation of the world, from before creation, Jesus has always been perfect and without flaw, no hint of sin, no hint of anything less than perfectly representing the Godhead's glory and holiness. I don't want to indicate by any means that Jesus was lacking in holiness. However, Jesus had to come and live for his people in order to save them. He had to live a righteous life because for the same reason a lamb could not be our substitute because it did not live a human existence. Jesus, before coming as a man, could not die, live for us or die for us because he had not lived a human existence. By man, the law had been broken. By man, the law must be kept. 
Jesus came and he lived for us. Simply put, he had to live as a man and die as a man in order to have a righteous record that he could provide for us. Consider Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. How is it possible for God to learn anything? And the answer is very simply this. He did not learn something in the sense that he had never understood something. He learned not by gaining information. Rather, what it means that he learned is that he experienced something that he had never previously experienced. Before Jesus came in the incarnation to live among us, before he was born of a virgin and lived in that place, before he had come to be a man, he had never once been tempted by sin. Before coming to earth, he had never once suffered. Before coming to earth, he had never once experienced the emotional trials and physical trials that you and I go through. And he had to go through the difficulties of loss and pain and sorrow like us so that he might continue to give a perfect righteous record for us. This is why the author of Hebrews goes out of his way to remind us of Jesus' ministry as one of us. And there are many ways that he does that. I encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 10 on your own. But he writes, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That is the Jesus, the Messiah, the righteous Lamb of God who lived for us. This is what Jesus was explaining to John the Baptist at his baptism. You remember that story. Jesus comes to John and says, you must baptize me. And if you were in John's shoes, you would say the exact same thing. No way, Jesus. I am not worthy to baptize you. I am baptizing people here for the repentance of sin. You have no sin. I have no business baptizing you. You should be baptizing me, John said. And do you remember what Jesus responded he said, I must do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. He had to live as us, experience our experiences, he had to walk in our shoes, and he had to succeed in every way that we fail. Theologians call this the active obedience of Christ. Simply put, we need a pure, spotless lamb who lives flawlessly for us. God demands a perfect life, and Jesus lived a perfect life for us. And the other side of the coin of the atonement is that God demands that sinners die. And the message of the Bible is that Jesus died for us. Honestly, there are so many ways. I was really struggling. How in the world am I going to condense this into just one-third of a sermon? This is everywhere in the scripture. This is on every page of the Bible. This is all over both Old and New Testament. How am I going to make this simple and clear? But what I'm going to do is simply walk us through something very familiar to you. As a way of framework, I want you to consider the most famous Bible verse in the entire world. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's break that down a little bit, shall we? For God so loved. I want to pause there 
because the way that the word so is being used is not how we often use it in contemporary English. Most of the time, you use the word so in your vernacular, you are using it for the purpose of intensity or extremity. For example, last night, I took my kiddos out for ice cream, and Kai Guy says on the way there, I love ice cream. I love ice cream so much. Yes, he does. He loves it so much. And oftentimes, when we read the verse in front of us, that's how we read it. Or if you want to Jane Austen this thing, you could say, I so like ice cream. It's used to express intensity or extremity. God so loved the world. He loved it so much. However, that's not the way that the word is being used here at all. The word so, in this instance, should be understood to mean in this manner or in this way. It is to answer the question, how did God love the world? He loved the world in this way. He loved the world by giving his only son. Now, here's the question. What does it mean that God gave Jesus? Now, I noticed over this past year, maybe this has always been true, but I just, for some reason, saw it everywhere this year, that Many Christian organizations, good and godly organizations, things that I subscribe to and I appreciate and I like and I support, often would produce things that talked about Jesus being the gift of God at Christmas. It was Christmas time, so basically what they're trying to do, I think, is they're trying to contrast God's giving of Jesus with Christian uh, or, or worldly giving that people do through presents. And I get that and I appreciate that and I like that, actually. The problem is the verse that they kept using to support the giving of Jesus in his birth was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. And they are referencing the birth of Jesus as the gift. However, that is not what Jesus is talking about when he says that God gave in John chapter 3, verse 16. And we know that for sure because this verse does not exist by itself. It exists in a context, in a conversation that Jesus was having with a man named Nicodemus. And in that conversation... Jesus is not talking about his birth, he is talking about his death. In order to understand exactly what Jesus is saying, we need to know the verses directly preceding what he says in verse 16. Jesus said, starting in John chapter 3, verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is exactly what he is referencing when he says that God gave. God loved in this way that the Son of Man would be lifted up. These two things, that he would be lifted up and gave, are paralleled with one another in the language. He is describing what he means by being lifted up. That God has gifted for us something that would be lifted up on our behalf. Now, we don't have the time to explore the book of Numbers today and the story of the serpents that came in and, and bit the Israelites and how God put that serpent, had Moses put the serpent on the pole so that everyone would look and live. We don't have time to explore that today. I encourage you to look at it on your own. Or if you want to know much more about it, I love talking about these things, so please talk to me about it. I would love to share more with you. But the main thing I want you to see here is not miss the fact that John 3.16 begins with the word for or because. John 3.16 is true because verses 14 and 15 are true. Jesus defines his own terms for us. God gave Jesus to be lifted up on a cross, literally meaning that God gave Jesus so that he would die publicly and observably for people. 
Now, this is due to the fact that God demands a perfect life, and God demands that sinners die. As promised, we're going to jump back now to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The only reason that Jesus had to die is that the sin of his people was transferred to him in that moment. At the cross, Jesus became the greater Isaac. He humbly submitted to the will of his father, even in the face of death. And the biggest difference between Isaac and Jesus is that no one was there to stop God's hand. God went through with it. God punished Christ. Jesus died at the hand of the father because God promised to provide a lamb And he promised to make a sacrifice, and he fulfilled those promises in his own son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, our pure and spotless lamb, was sacrificed in place of sinners like you and me. God did not spare his own son, Romans 8.32. Jesus died because he became our substitute both in life and in death. He gave us the perfect record of his life. And he took our sin and bore it unto death. So what I want to do right now is walk us briefly through a couple of verses from Isaiah 53. But as I do, the main thing that I want you to acknowledge here are the pronouns. Who is doing the action here? This is the answer to what it means that God gave his son. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Speaking of Jesus. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who is it that laid our sins on Jesus? It was God the Father. Who was it that crushed Jesus for our iniquities? Verse 10 tells us it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the Father. Who is it that has put him to grief? Verse 10, it was the Father who has put him to grief. Who killed Jesus? That is literally what the word smitten means. He was smitten by the Father. What makes the gospel good news is that God provides what God demands. God demands a perfect life, and God demands that sinners die. And Jesus, the only perfect man who ever lived, took our sin on the cross, and he died for them. Jesus lived on our behalf, and Jesus died on our behalf. This is why Jesus cried out, it is finished. His life had succeeded. He had accomplished all that was necessary to fulfill all righteousness. And his death succeeded. It did all that was necessary to accomplish the complete eradication of our sin because it had been paid in full. The division between God and man that had persisted from the time of Adam was completely concluded. The cross is the central pinnacle moment of all history. Not just human history, but the history of the entire created universe. There has never been, and nor will there ever be, a more consequential event than the cross. Jesus finished the work. He completed 
everything necessary for sinners like you and me to know God and to have a relationship with him that whosoever believes will have eternal life. That happens because God gave him at the cross. The book of the Bible that speaks about lambs more than any other, does anybody know what it is by any chance? It's the book of Numbers. I didn't expect that when I was looking this up. But the second most common usage of the word lamb in the Bible actually occurs in another surprising book. It is the book of Revelation. The book tells us so much about the lamb of God, and we even sang a little bit about that earlier in our first song today. The Bible constantly uses the term because this term continues to remind all of heaven about what Jesus did at the cross. Here's the thing, heaven never gets over the cross. It never surpasses that. It never, it never moves on from the simple reality that Jesus died for sinners, that he was the lamb who died in place of the wicked. Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended to the Father and he is in heaven now. And everyone in heaven is rejoicing about that marvelous moment that happened 2,000 years ago at the cross. They are continuing to sing and they will forever continue to celebrate the victory that Jesus had at the cross. So allow me to close now with just a few quick words that John heard in the heavenly choirs when they were singing during his vision in Revelation chapter 5. They sing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever, and God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father God, we are so grateful for the cross. Lord, we are thankful that this central truth of all history gives preeminence to Jesus Christ, your Son. Lord, for every person in this room who knows you, I pray that we would have a strong hunger to know and understand the doctrine of atonement, that we might understand exactly what Jesus was coming to do and what he has accomplished at the cross. God, I pray that every person here who knows you would be hungry for deeper understanding of what was taking place when you gave your son to die. And God, I pray that we would be grateful when we understand that you gave your son to also live for us, that when you see us, you see his record. Lord, what a great blessing it is to know that you will never, ever judge me for my works. And for those who are in this room who know you, that you will not judge them according to their actions, but rather they are going to be judged based upon the work and action of another, that you have given us all that we need in the righteous record of Jesus Christ who lived for us. And God, I pray that if anyone is here that doesn't know you, if there is anyone here that is currently still an enemy, that they would truly understand that God requires a perfect life and that God demands that sinners die. And Lord, I pray that they would know the stakes and they would see the reality that they are desperately in need of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Please, God, we pray that there would be rich conviction and a drawing of your spirit that takes place even now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.